from Unity of the Valley Spiritual Center in Vacaville, California. Is that wonderful? Shall we celebrate these artists again? Oh, I love that song. It reminds me of that spiritual cycle of life. You know, how we show up, the things we experience, and how again and again we get to reaffirm what we know to be true. And... Um, and life gives us opportunities, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, I know for myself, this is, it's always such an interesting month, February, you know, because we hear these messages about love. If it's romantic love, it's familial love, if it's love of community, if it's that transcendent love that we're able to feel when we really know we're one with God and all that is. It got me thinking, what are the things that keep me from really fully expressing and experiencing love? Fully expressing and experiencing God. And for me, it's been those times when life is giving me stuff to deal with. And when I don't remember to give myself the gift of my own spiritual practices. And then taking that even further, when I'm not giving myself that, how I seem to lose my way and forget that intuitive knowing, that divinity, that Christ self that is within me. Our co-founder, Myrtle Fillmore, calls that inner knowing spiritual understanding. And in her book, How to Let God Help You, she devotes a chapter to that. And she talks in that chapter about us becoming as a little child and let the universal spirit of good teach us. And she mentions how there's been a running to and fro among humans that'll never cease as long as we try to exp explain spiritual things with our intellect. And she says, listen to the stillness within your own soul. Don't bother about what others may think or say about you. Know you are God's child with ability along all lines to do whatever you really wish to do. This is the way to distinguish the real from the unreal. The way to experience the promise of a new heaven and a new earth, the new Jerusalem. I love that phrase, you know, the new heaven and new earth, new Jerusalem. It comes, of course, from some ancient Christian scriptures. It's the book of Revelation. And for any of you who've studied the Bible, you know that letter was written 
to reassure people who were oppressed. It was written kind of in code to let them know that everything will come out okay. And it's always impressed me about what that must have been like at that time to be practicing a Christian faith. And think about how difficult it must have been in the light of all that oppression to be able to show up and still feel love and express love. You know, when we feel like we're just trying to survive, it's really difficult to feel God and to express that God wisdom within us. And in the book itself, we see these images and these references to um, corruption and what are the consequences of corruption. And then these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, and I heard a loud voice saying, See, I am making all things new. All things new. And isn't that what it feels like when we've gone through one of those times in our life? where it feels like the circumstances are trying to squash all the joy and all the love out of us. And when we rem remember to step back from all the other people's ideas and the intellectual trying to figure out, and we take that time in our spiritual practices, we do remember the truth. We feel that wisdom within expressing and we can choose from that place. We can again know love and know God. I've seen some wonderful, wonderful inspirational people recently. And one of them, his story showed up um, in an unexpected place for me. But it's the story of a guy named Phil. And Phil, when he was very young, discovered the joys of art. And he knew he wanted to give his life to art and making art. And he did that as much as he could, you know, putting up with the rest of the stuff he had to learn in school and, you know, and then focusing on what his passion was. And it was while he was in high school he learned about this kind of art called pointillism. How many of you know what that is? Point yes, see, some art lovers and artists in the room here. And so, you know, many of you know that that kind of art is very revered in the art world because it involves putting one little tiny dot after another on a larger piece of canvas or, or whatever material is being used. And going one tiny dot at a time. And when you step back, this larger image is revealed. Well, he could not let himself do anything else. This was his purpose in life. This was his passion. This was what he was born to do. And he was busy, you know, that dominant hand, to the point 
that his hands started shaking. And the shaking seemed to increase more and more. And um, he was able to go to art school. And he loved being there, but he struggled because what, what he had been doing like this, now he's having to hold his hand and try to control it to make those dots. So they start looking like little tadpoles instead, swimming all over the paper. And it was really <laughs> getting more difficult for him to do this to the point that the more he tried to control it, the more pain, the more nerve damage, the harder the shake. So that if he tried to draw a straight line, it was this wild, wiggly thing. He couldn't even hold anything in this hand because of the pain and the shaking anymore. And he left art school. He just felt like his whole life dream had just been lost. And it was not a happy place. He could not imagine or think of anything else he could do. Well, eventually he started getting on with life and, and the, the, some years went by, but he, he could not let go of this idea of art. And so he, um, he had the thought, you know, just stepping back from it all, that he needed to go to a neurologist. And he went to see this neurologist who was very good at what he did, this neurologist. But, you know, when Phil was sharing his dream, the doctor was less than caring. Didn't necessarily have the best bedside manner. And when Phil showed him the attempt at the straight line, the doctor just kind of cavalierly said, well, why don't you just embrace the shake? Didn't feel very good in the moment, but the profound nature of that statement started coming through for Phil. And he realized that he could make art. And he went home and he started making these drawings that were all scribbly all over, and, and that was discouraging, you know? He, he didn't know quite what to do, but he, he got a job so he could get some art supplies, and, and he was applying all his intellect to try to figure out what kind of art he could make. And he was coming up with nothing. And he started questioning, well, what if I really had nothing at all? How would I make art then? And at Starbucks one day, he found out about free cups, and they gave him 50 cups. And so with a little handful of pencils, 80 cents worth of pencils, he used those cups, and he made this incredible work of art. And he knew from there that he could do his art again. He knew that there could be a way. And he loved that idea of pointillism with lots of marks on the page. And so he thought about what he could do with his, his shaky hand. And he realized that on a big wall, he could do karate chops. They didn't have to be exact for it to turn out well. He stepped in paint, and then he walked around on the canvas because his feet weren't shaking. You know, he found ways to do what he loved to do. He thought of how he could do with so much less and do so much more. 
He even discovered that if he had a banana and a pushpin, he could do a drawing. Because as the banana ripened, that drawing would come forward. Amazing what he found for himself to do. Started to let go of the idea of being attached to the outcome. Made a sculpture out of matches. Lit it on fire. Endless possibilities. He did this video at one point, like time-lapse photography, where on his own chest, he painted one image after another on top of the other of all the influences on him through the years. And then he peeled it off of his chest. He laid it down. He cut out his own silhouette, opened it up, and that was the end of the video. In no time at all, there were over a million views of that on the internet. Now it's closer to two million. He was invited one year to be the official artist of the Grammy Awards. Stepping back, when our intellect and other people's ideas for us don't seem to be working anymore, and going within to that place, where we can open ourselves to new ideas. It's a powerful thing. Because we can again enjoy what we love. And we can share that love with the whole world. How many of you have been to the key leader events that, that happen here at um, Unity of Vacaville? They're wonderful events. I, um, there's someone who I met who um, is in leadership at Unity in Roseville, the other side of Sacramento. And um, I remember visiting there and speaking and meeting her one time. And um, her name is Toni Carter. And you may have met her at some of these key leader events because she's in leadership there too. And she wrote a book called My Life in Prison. Not because she was an inmate, but because she teached at the 7th and 8th grade levels there for 16 years. Yes, it was a big adventure at Folsom Prison, you know, and she had taught in another setting before that, but she knew that was where she needed to be. A woman of color, she knew about the inequities that resulted in the disproportionate numbers of certain people within the population. She also knew that there was a need for the structure and the boundaries and the intellectual ideas about that process because her, one of her brothers had been murdered. And she had seen the effect on her family but also the life and the family of the person who had committed that crime. She went in with compassion and with the benefit of what she knew intellectually to be true. And, um, and she was able to support some people who were, who were able to step out, but to help them have some of those ba basic skills that you can get in a school setting. And, as a part of that, she trained um, different um, prisoners 
to be her teaching assistant. And, um, and she had some positive experiences with that and some that were not so positive because some of the people who she trained to do that, they really were focused more on expressing their dissatisfaction to where, with where they were rather than being a benefit to other people in a learning environment. And, um, and then she had the opportunity to train a young man named Frankie. Frankie had um, been convicted of first-degree murder and at age 16, and he was at the CYA until age 22 when he was transferred to Folsom Prison. And she saw something in Frankie that she had not seen in the other people that she had trained before. You know, it was really common for inmates to talk very openly about whatever they were convicted of, almost a little bit bragging about it. But what she saw in him was he consistently said, I didn't commit the crime. And he was always positive, he was always creative, so organized. And it was a pleasure to go to work every day because she knew he would be there to help create that positive environment. And, um, and after he was with her for almost two years, she found out about a prison policy that after two years, a teaching assistant has to rotate so that no um, relationship of caring develops. Intellectual reasons for that. But after all that she had gone through in those 16 years and knowing she was going to have to train someone else again with that process, she thought, it's time to retire. You know, and so she planned it. She planned that when he needed to rotate, she was just going to step away. And she, um, you know, was doing a lot of different things leading up to that time. But one day, before she left, Frankie came to her. And she had seen him go through this process of trying to find someone to champion his cause and get his case back to court. And he would, he would go follow a trail on a possible lead, and then he'd hit a wall. And he would just be so discouraged. And she saw him do that, and she always encouraged him that God was present and active in his life. And he would draw away for a time, and then he'd go back again. And he'd try another, another possible lead again to get someone to stand for him on the outside. And, and she began to see through his experience how when someone is incarcerated or is somehow institutionalized, they start to become invisible to people who are not in that situation. And even though all her intellect and understanding of those rules about separation was there, she took a copy of his case when she left the prison on retirement. It took her months to recover her strength because working in that environment, even with his help, it just sapped everything she had physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And, um, you know, and there was this thing going on inside her head. She was resting for months, and 
It's like, oh, this isn't going to make any difference. This can make any difference. But then this other thing over here saying, you need to do this. You need to do this. And, um, and after she'd rested a time, she started seeking out that champion for him. And so she went down a road where she thought she had someone who might help. And she'd hit a wall. And she came back and drew back into herself. And then it happened again. And it happened again. She started to feel invisible to people, too. She had been invited by a friend to visit San Francisco and have, have a fun weekend. And she was really looking forward to it. And she got an invitation, an invitation from a group of volunteers from Folsom Prison who she had stayed in contact with because she just appreciated them and how they'd made so many people's lives better with the work they were doing. And, and so um, they invited her to come to this function, and she did not want to go. You know, her brain says, I don't have time to do that on the day I'm traveling to San Francisco. What about all that traffic? What about this? What about that? But in her quiet time, it wouldn't let her alone. And so she went, and she got a chair farthest away from everyone else, closest to the door, so she could run out, you know. And, and of all the chairs that were available in the room, this woman came up and sat right next to her. And during the course of this, this function, that woman stood up and introduced herself as a deputy state public defender. And Tony knew why she was there. And she started talking to that woman and and telling her about Frankie's case, and, and, the, and the attorney kept saying negative things, or, you know, no, well, that, or then and Tony kept saying, well, but there's this, and, you know, and so they were going through this, and finally, probably to get rid of Tony, she says, well, here's my card, you know, send me a copy of his case, and, and uh, I'll see if I can, you know, look it over for you, and, um, and off Tony went to San Francisco after mailing the copies off, and, and the day she got back, she had a phone call from that attorney. And that attorney was so excited, having read the case, to see that it was, the conviction was based on a single eyewitness's testimony who claimed from a long distance, in the dark, with a, with a speeding vehicle, to have made a positive identification. She also found out that someone else had acknowledged responsibility for the killing. And she got busy trying to find someone, an attorney, to take the case. And she started having this experience of hitting a wall again and again. And she finally took the case herself, turning over stone after stone in the investigation and they had a date. They got a trial date in Los Angeles. And the time that Frankie spent in that Los Angeles County Jail was the most difficult of all the incarceration he had known in his life. Because the case that was being brought forward in court pointed directly to corruption of the agency that ran the jail. He was um, in solitary confinement by night, and by day, dirty and scruffy in the courtroom. 
But witness after witness came forward, changing their testimony so that the district attorney said, you have established your burden of proof. We are ready to drop the case. And the judge ordered Frankie released. It took three days of battle by his attorney to let him actually get out of that jail. But this just points to the power of living life on a spiritual basis. No matter what other people think of you, no matter what our intellect tells us, our dreams can come true. We can remember God. We can know God. We can remember love and know love. Frankie got to graduate from college. It had been his dream since he was 16 years old. love. It's a powerful thing. And we, we let ourselves rest in remembering the truth. We can live from that place. We can feel it. We can know it. And we can share it with the world. Bless you, friends. Thank you for listening to Unity of the Valley Spiritual Center. Our services are every Sunday, 8 o'clock and 10 o'clock at 350 North Orchard Avenue in Vacaville, California. You can support our podcast by making a donation at www.unityvacaville.org.